Welcome to Fertility Friendly Food. I'm your host, Stephanie Velarkis, accredited practicing dietitian and nutritionist and director of The Dietologist, an Australian-based practice focused on optimizing fertility through nutrition. This podcast will bring you snack-sized episodes for you to learn, grow, and be inspired by the latest research, facts, and practical lifestyle tips about eating well for optimal fertility, helping you cut through the confusion and myths to take back some of the control on your fertility journey, one bite at a time. Welcome back to another episode of Fertility Friendly Food, the podcast. My name is Stephanie and I am an expert fertility dietitian and nutritionist and founder of The Dietologist and of course your host. So today's episode is another Q&A episode, but this time I'm answering your fertility nutrition questions. If you missed my last Q&A episode, I focused on endometriosis. And what these Q&A episodes are all about is collating your questions from my Instagram page, which is at the underscore dietologist. I pop a question box on there. You drop your questions in there and I pick a handful to chat through. So you are really getting the most out of this podcast. So I will try to answer as many as I can in about 15 or 20 minutes. So we'll see how we go for time. And also don't forget that you can register for my free masterclass anytime, the four fertility diet mistakes that you are making whilst trying to conceive. These are so, so common and really easy to overcome and I teach you how to do so in the masterclass. And if you do come along, I'm also gifting you my Choosing a Prenatal Supplement e-guide valued at $37. So if you want to hit the link in the show notes to save your seat to the next available time, please do so and I'd love to see you there. Now, onto your questions. I had a whole bunch of questions about omega-3s, so I'm going to address each of them because I thought they were fabulous questions, and I do have a whole podcast episode about optimizing omega-3s and why they're so important for fertility and pregnancy, but these were very, very specific questions that I didn't actually address in that podcast episode, so I thought this would be a great opportunity to clear all of those up. So the first question was, should I be concerned about mercury when it comes to eating omega-3 rich fish? And the short answer is no. And the reason why that is my answer is because omega-3 rich fish such as salmon, trout, sardines and anchovies are considered small enough that the mercury content is not considered a major concern. When we're talking about mercury-rich fish, we're talking about fish such as king mackerels, uh, broadbill, orange ruffy catfish, swordfish, sailfins, um, uh, and even to a degree tuna, which is why I don't suggest clients have more than two tins of tuna per week because that's what the pregnancy recommendation is and choosing skipjack tuna over yellowfin tuna where possible um, to minimize mercury exposure. But at the end of the day, anything that comes from the ocean is going to have some kind of mercury. And the way that mercury works when it comes to its content in fish is basically bigger fish eat smaller fish and those smaller fish eat even smaller fish. And, you know, you go down the food chain till you get to plankton and algae. 
So it's called the bioaccumulation of mercury because mercury can't be excreted by the fish. So it just accumulates in their flesh. So then once you consume that fish, they're then taking on all their mercury from all the microscopic amounts in all the fish that they had consumed and so on and so forth. So it concentrates in much larger fish. So it is an important concern because mercury is a reproductive um, toxin. Uh, It's also a neurotoxin. And we also need to be aware of mercury content whilst pregnant as well. So it's important to avoid mercury rich fish, but fortunately oily fish aren't meeting that criteria of mercury rich. Do I recommend that you eat fish three times a day, every day? No, even if it is those small fish. A, that's probably not great from a dietary variety perspective anyway. And B, yeah, sure, eventually it's all going to add up in terms of mercury content. But if you're having fish one to two times a week or even three times a week, it's totally fine. And also if you're selecting a omega-3 supplement, um, we do this for you in our express prenatal supplement consultations with clients, but we always choose one that not only meets but exceeds the mercury Um, recommendations that set out by the Australian kind of standards, which are very, very strict. So I like for it not only just to meet that standard, but exceed it where possible. So I only select from a very small range of brands when it comes to omega-3s for my clients. So hopefully that answers your questions. There is always going to be a pro and a con to eating almost any food. Um, So I wouldn't be scared of, say, your salmon or trout or anchovies or sardines over the mercury content, that's for sure. The next question about omega-3s that I got was, are they safe in early pregnancy? And the answer is yes. There are a few medical circumstances which your obstetrician or doctor should inform you about if it applies to you, where omega-3s may not be recommended in your particular pregnancy. But for the most part, especially in pregnancy, you should be optimizing your omega-3s from both your diet and potentially also supplementation. So we know that a better omega-3 status reduces the risk of preterm birth and preterm labor. Obviously, preterm birth and preterm labor are really complex events Um, which have multiple factors involved, but omega-3 status being poor, particularly in early pregnancy, has been linked to that particular event. Um, We've got new data in people with endometriosis who are pregnant, showing that those who adhered to a more anti-inflammatory style diet, which included omega-3 fats, were less likely to have preterm birth and also smaller babies. So there's a lot of benefits to omega-3s at all stages of pregnancy, including in first trimester. And I would also suggest that the other reason you should feel motivated to incorporate omega-3s in your diet and supplement regime when pregnant is because it supports the brain and eye development of the baby, um, which is made up dominantly of those unsaturated fats. So super, super important. Unless your doctor or dietitian has advised that you stop, um, it is considered safe um, to take and recommended to take in pregnancy. Now, the last question that has an omega-3 flavor to it is, which is better, wild or farmed salmon? Now, we can look at this from a variety of different perspectives. We can look at it from an environmental perspective, a health perspective, and so on. But just for the simplicity of this conversation, I'm just going to keep it to the health um, aspects because I'm guessing that's the vein in which you were asking that question. So farmed and 
wild caught salmon are both safe and nutritious to eat. So when I get this question asked, I often just say, just eat whatever you prefer or is accessible to you. I'd rather you eat them, as in the salmon, than than not. That's that's the crucial one. So about two-thirds of the global supply of salmon is farm-raised. And interestingly, farm salmon has higher amounts of omega-6 fatty acids compared to wild salmon, about four times. Um, While the balance between omega-6 to omega-3 is not as good as wild-caught salmon, it's probably not a concern. The other concern that often gets raised about wild versus farmed is contaminant levels of polychlorinated biphenyls or PCBs, dioxins and DLCs, dioxin-like compounds. Now, this is known to be slightly higher in the farm salmon than of wild-caught and do have potential health consequences. So it just depends on where it's being farmed because each geographical location has different contaminant levels. Um, Salmon source from northern Europe um, contained more um, dioxin-like compounds. However, they're still within the recommended international safety limits and all of them have to meet that international recognised safety limit anyway. So from that, I guess the the ideal answer is probably wild caught from a essential fatty acid perspective, but from a and from a contaminant perspective, um, there is still going to be some contaminants in wild caught anyway. Um, maybe it's just a little bit different than the farmed, and it's going to vary based on location. So. There is no cut and dry answer on that particular topic, unfortunately. I'm sorry. Um, You'll just have to make up your mind as to what you would like to do when it comes to your own personal choices in your The next question I thought was an excellent one, moving away from the omega-3 topic, which was, should you be getting screened for your fertility proactively? Um, What are the timeframe recommendations versus actual? So um, this person was quoting, you know, the 12 months of trying to conceive unassisted if you're under the age of 35 or if you're 35 and over it's six months of um, trying to conceive unassisted and then you're referred to a fertility specialist. Um, so this is a fantastic question and, you know, I'd love to pick a fertility doctor's brains about it, but having had conversations with a, quite a few fertility doctors, if you have any kind of concern either existing such as you have a pre-existing health concern that may affect your reproductive health or you would just like the peace of mind of going to have a consultation with a fertility specialist and having some screenings done and you know a lot of screenings are now offered through your GP as well um, around you know checking that your um, immune system levels of certain um, things that we've been vaccinated against as kids has in, is in the right range you know some nutritional lab work um, you can even get your AMH or egg uh, count test or it's really an ovarian reserve test I hate saying egg count test but um, seems to <laughs> be better grasped um, and you know some basic scans like an ultrasound scan can be all organized by a GP so you can be really proactive before you even get to a fertility specialist um, there's also preconception um, genetic 
screening tests that you can do through um, fertility clinics and private companies as well. And all, a lot of that stuff you can do proactively before you even start trying to conceive. So you are fully aware of where you and your partner are at. If you have a partner that you're trying to conceive with um, prior to starting trying or prior to getting further investigations done. So yeah, I think there is no rules at the end of the day. A fertility specialist is going to be like, well, nope, I'm not going to see you because you haven't been trying to conceive for 12 months. It's only been eight. Um, That's not the case, particularly if you are tracking your cycle you've got some information or you have a particular concern or you'd like for some screenings to be done, that absolutely can be done for you. So I definitely vote for being proactive and the time frame is really there as a maximum. So, you know, if you're going on 15 months of trying to conceive and you still yet to book with a fertility specialist, well, you know, that should have really been done three months ago. So it's just that little nudge to get you in the right direction. And the reason why we have these guidelines in place is because by 12 months, I believe the statistic is 80% of couples would have conceived um, and and been going into a pregnancy and then 20% won't have. And that's, I guess, where that that group of people will then be consulted for on a fertility um, treatment plan, I guess. And for those 35 and over, it's six months only because they we don't want to let time get away from us from an age perspective um, and be really proactive about uh, initiating any fertility interventions to support you conceiving because we have less time. And so that's really important. So yeah, I think if you feel the need to be proactive about your fertility health and, you know, go and see your GP, ask for a referral to a fertility specialist, I think that is the right course of action for you. Each person's going to be really, really different, but certainly after 12 months trying to conceive under 35 or six months for 35 and over, really crucial. And I also recommend that once you get to the, you know, 10 or 11 month mark or the four or five month mark, that's when you start making your arrangements, get your referral, make the appointment with the doctor. So it's ready to go. At the end of the day, you can easily call up and say, hey, don't worry, I'm pregnant. I need to cancel. That's not an issue, but it's about having all those things ducks in a row beforehand because all these things have waiting periods as well. So really important. Now, the next question is, what is the single best tip to support my fertility at age XYZ? Now, I was going to answer this question in the way that you probably wanted me to, but I decided not to. And here's why. I think we need to let go of this idea of the single best tip or the one tip. I know we want it to be simple. We just, oh, what's the one thing that would benefit me most of my fertility if I was being really honest my best tip would be come and see us come and see a fertility dietitian that would be my single best tip from a nutrition perspective because then we'll be able to cover lots of different things but I don't have a single best tip and I think the reason why we like this idea is because it gives us only one thing to focus on a box to tick and we can move on and that makes us feel really good And I totally get it. Doing lots of things can be a burden. It can be stressful. I totally get it. But it's really important that we let go of this idea of the single best tip and embrace the fact that it's a multifaceted, complex uh, area of our health that we're talking about here that's going to potentially need more than just one simple quick change that's going to make a difference. 
that would be my response to that particular question. I know it's probably not the one you wanted, <laughs> a bit cheeky of me, but I think that would be the most helpful from a mindset perspective to reframe and realize that it's not just one thing. It is many little things that all add up and accumulate to give us the outcomes that we're looking for. All right, I have a couple more questions here. I know we are getting close to my like mental 20-minute maximum for this episode. So I'm going to talk now about vegan and vegetarian diets when trying to conceive. Now, I have a fantastic blog post that I wrote a little while ago about vegan diets and fertility, and I think you absolutely can have a really nutritious vegan diet and conceive and have a healthy pregnancy. However, if you're doing it alone, as in you're not seeing a dietitian, that I would strongly caution against. The risk of nutrient deficiencies, particularly if you're not taking the right supplements or replacing appropriately in your diet, is very high. And the consequences when trying to conceive or pregnant are a little bit higher because the requirements are going to start to increase and you just really don't want to be behind the eight ball because it may affect a, your pregnancy health, and B, how you feel to the point of like real exhaustions. For example, if you have a really bad iron or B12 deficiency and you become anemic, for example. Really, really, really important. Other nutrients to be aware of beyond iron are things like zinc, things like iodine, things like omega-3s, and also similar for vegetarians, although with the inclusion of um, eggs and dairy, it can be a little bit easier. Vegans need to be aware of their calcium intake as well as their choline intake to support the health of the pregnancy. Um, the other episode I posted recently was about choline. So if that's the first time you're hearing that word, go back and listen to that episode. So there's a lot of nutrients at risk and we're going to have to be on top of it. So I would recommend having at least one session with the dietitian to plan out a nutritious vegan or vegetarian diet and also a supplement plan for your conception or pregnancy. Really, really important. Vegetarian, a little bit more flexibility with calcium and choline because hopefully you're including dairy and eggs regularly as well as other, um, as well as the vegan sources of proteins and um, other food groups, fruits and veggies and grains and so on. So that is my answer to that question. But if you are vegan or vegetarian, go and check out that blog post um, to get your head around some of those key nutrients and principles and definitely book in a consultation. Okay, last question. What are your tips for first trimester nutrition? My tip is to survive. <laughs> so um, I think everybody goes into the first trimester with the absolute best intentions of nourishing their body to support them and their baby. And that is so, so noble and absolutely so important. But reality is for over 80 to 90% of people who fall pregnant, in the first trimester, you are going to experience nausea. And nausea has a massive impact on the type of foods we feel like, how much we eat, how often we eat, and the overall dietary quality of our diets. So we're not going to be focusing on oh beautiful salads with avocado and all this kind of stuff in our first trimester because that's probably not going to sound really appealing. And some of your protein foods, the smell or the thought of them could be absolutely 
you know, vomit worthy. So we don't want to push you in that direction if that's not what you feel like or can bear the thought of. I think the critical aspect here is that you've worked on your nutrition in the preconception phase. You're taking the right prenatal supplement for you to help support you from a nutrient density perspective of your folate and your iodine and your omega-3s and so on. And just doing your best, choosing healthier alternatives of those foods that you're craving, which is typically your salty and carby foods. So instead of eating a packet of chips, have popcorn because it's got more fiber. It's also a whole grain, for example. So just those little swaps there are going to make a really big difference. Keep yourself well hydrated. If you vomit, make sure you rinse your mouth out. Um, go and speak to your dentist if you're vomiting a lot because it will eventually ruin your teeth enamel. Seek help from your doctor if you're really struggling with your nausea because they're are medications and other strategies available to support you. Um, You can try some fresh ginger as well or ginger ale. Um, There's also some ginger tablets with B6 in them that may help support nausea. So there's lots of strategies around nausea that can help. The other thing that typically crops up in the first trimester as well is constipation. So again, making sure you're really well hydrated, but also that constipation can be secondary to really bad nausea if you're just not eating as well as you usually do in terms of your fiber intake in particular. The good news is in the first trimester, you don't need any extra calories or energy. So it's really just about nutrient density. Um, So where possible, if you are feeling well or you're feeling well in a particular time of the day, you want to be aiming for your fruit, your veggies, your protein-rich foods, whole grains and dairy foods, and keep the um, snacky type, more processed foods to a minimum where practical. But it's not always practical, and that is totally okay. It's just about getting through, and once you're feeling a bit better, you can get back into your old your old habits, less your um, food safety risk foods, and you know, keep keeps chugging along. All right, that is a wrap on this Q&A episode. Would love to hear from you if you like this style of episodes where we talk about lots of different topics um, in a quick and sharp kind of format. So drop me a DM over on Instagram at the underscore dietologist if you liked this episode. And yeah, if you do, I'll make sure I do another one again soon. All right, that's a wrap. I will catch you in the next episode. Bye. (laughs) 